Does the Bible put restrictions on who can or can't teach in church? One Bible verse talks about women not being permitted to speak, but another verse talks about them prophesying in church. So which is it? Are some of the mandates in scripture just for a certain time and context, or are they universal? And why is it that Christians are divided on the roles of women in ministry? We're going to be talking about all of that and much more on today's episode of Theology on Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. Theology on Air is an offshoot of Theology on Tap, where a bunch of uh, Houstonians in their 20s and 30s come out to drink craft beer and talk about theology and philosophy and faith and culture. And then we get to dive into those topics even more deeply in the podcast. And uh, once in a while, we have a debate, a friendly debate, a debate Theology on Tap style or Theology on Air style, where we actually get along and we learn things and, you know, we're nice to each other, but we disagree. Um, and we're going to disagree charitably. That's one of our like big values at Theology on Tap and Theology on Air. So I am joined today by, well, I'm Sarah Stone. I'm the Outreach Director for Young Adults at MDPC, which is out on the west side of Houston. And I am joined by Elizabeth White. Elizabeth teaches 12th grade Bible at Houston Christian High School. She has her BA in Christian Theology from HBU and a Master's in Analytic and Exegetical Theology from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And a fun fact about her is that she met her husband at Theology on Tap. So if you're listening to this and you're single, <laughs> you can come to Theology on Tap and meet the love of your life too. It's not a guarantee, but you know, can't hurt to try. And Stephen Curto, a jack of all trades. He's a full-time academic advisor, librarian, IT guy, and Greek and Hebrew tutor at the Dallas Theological Seminary Houston campus, a part-time hermeneutics teacher at a private classical school, and a freelance podcaster, blogger, copy editor, Bible teacher, and apologist. Whew. He has a <laughs> master's of theology from DTS and likes anything that involves creativity or shooting guns. I didn't even know that till today. Mm -hmm. And is engaged to be married in February. You didn't meet your <laughs> fiance at Theology on Tap, though, did you? I did not. Ah, that, how cool would that be? That would be great. He also uh, showcases different cocktails on his blog, so that's fun. He's like, today I'm drinking a old-fashioned with a twist, blah, blah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I imagine, I only listen, but I imagine you in like a pipe and like a velvet sport coat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not that exciting. Usually I'm sitting in gym shorts and a t-shirt. Oh, no, but Don't tell uh, anyone that. Yeah. It's audio only, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's true. But that's what I picture, and there's it's smoky. <laughs> That's, you know? that's the goal. So and I'm glad it's working. you're saying words like rubbish. Yeah. I don't know. Hey. Anyway. Um, so if you've joined us for any of our debates before, you know that we um, we like to have fun with these. And it's not going to be a like you get five minutes for rebuttal. And you, But um, these two do disagree on this topic. And so I'm going to let them each take just a few minutes to begin with where we ask them like a little bit of your own story of faith. Why this interests you at all? Like what your personal sort of like skin in the game is. And then kind of what your overarching thoughts are on women teaching in the church, women ordination, women leadership, that kind of thing. Um, and then we'll we'll dive into some Bible verses. So, Beth, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I wish that I could say that I did not think that women should teach in church because it would be way more interesting if he thought they should and I think, thought That's they true. should. That's <laughs> true. But however, I am uh, supporting the affirmative position. So I think that women should be allowed to teach and preach um, the Bible in a church context. Uh, but yes, a little bit about me and my story, um, specifically with this issue. Is that what we're... Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear just a little bit of your story of faith, if it's, yeah. especially if it's juicy. Yeah. Like, did you used to be a heroin addict or anything? Uh, no. I was about to say I wish. I don't wish <laughs> that I used to be yeah. a heroin addict. Oh, I'm a nickel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I actually was just raised in the church. I um, 
grew up Southern Baptist. So I was in a church where there were no female pastors. Um, I think that that is important because it was in high school and college that I really started to um, own my faith and study scripture. And um, I fell in love with the Bible before anything else. Um, And so my story is kind of funny. My uh, husband and I always joke of like, if I wrote a book, the title would have something to do with like, from pastor's wife to PhD student, just because I, or like from wannabe pastor's wife to PhD student, because I, my story really is I graduated college or graduated high school and I didn't even want to go to college um, because I just, I wanted to be a girls minister. And I, at that point was um, really involved in my uh, Southern Baptist mega church. And I thought that I could just like work my way up in the church and intern um, and work with young women and teach young women what it meant to be a godly woman and a biblical woman. And, uh, so that's all I wanted to do. And my parents forced me to go to college, which I, yes, it was terrible yeah. of them, but I'm very thankful of them. Uh, and so I ended up at Houston Baptist university where my one goal was to, uh, learn more about the Bible so that I could again, teach women and, um, become a pastor's wife. And I wanted to marry a church planter. That is specific. Uh, yeah. I wanted to marry somebody who would be a pastor and a church planter because those were things that I loved and things that I thought were really great, but things that I genuinely had a very strong conviction that I was not allowed to do. Mm. Um, and so I think it was probably a year or two of college where I was still hardcore complementarian. Um, Tell people what that word means. So there's two fancy words associated with this whole discussion. Yeah. Tell us what they are. Yeah. So it's complementarianism and egalitarianism. And so technically, I know, Stephen, we've talked about this before. You don't like these terms. Well, um, neither of you really use <laughs> no, those. I, know. I, it, I, I do because it's the easiest way to communicate what I'm talking about. And for the most part... I don't really need that much nuance because one says that women can fulfill the role of elder and teacher and one says that women can't. Uh, and that's what I, I mean, that's the essence. Yeah, if that's all we mean by it, then so, we can use yeah, those terms. We don't, yeah. have to, we don't have to get yeah. into like the weeds of the details, but complementarian technically is saying that women and men both have separate roles, um, like equal in value, but separate in their roles and what they're able to do. And so um, men are to fulfill the role of pastor. Women are to fulfill the role of... That's what we don't know when you ask. Making sandwiches. I don't know. Okay. Well, I'm sure Stephen will elucidate that. uh, So that's, but that's typically, and then egalitarian is basically saying that uh, men and women are both uh, equipped and able to do either, um, to do any role that they feel so called. Gotcha. Um, And that's how I would probably best define. Okay. So you went from wanting to be the wife of the person that could do all Mm -hmm. that. Yes. And then something shifted. Yeah. So I just started studying the Bible. Um, And I think I was processing through this on my way here and realized that I, uh, it was my junior and senior year when I really started to own this subject, because up until then I hadn't thought too much about it. And then I, I started really feeling a pull to um, do further study and go into academia. Um, I, really like and I can't describe it other than just saying it's a calling like I don't really have another explanation for it except that every time I try and think that I'll do something else it always comes back to I want to be having my PhD and in a seminary training people to be pastors that's what I feel like I'm called to do um 
And so once I started feeling that pull, it was this like, well, is this like, is that allowed? Like, mm-hmm. uh, cause a lot of people, even complementarians, people who don't think women should be pastors were telling me that, yeah, you can go teach in a seminary. And that seemed very inconsistent to me. So I started getting kind of uncomfortable with like the inconsistencies of the complementarian view. And that led me to pursue further into looking at it. And it was either I need to be consistent here. And I need, or I need to like figure it out. And so two things happened and I'm almost done because I realize I'm talking for a while. Uh, You are all good. Two things happened. The first was that I started learning about biblical theology, which is, um, if you know anything about the Bible project, they're really into biblical theology. And so it's this idea that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a unified story pointing to Jesus and his plan for humanity um, and his plan to re- create or uh, reinstate his original intentions for creation. So um, it's the creation to new creation plan of redemption throughout all of scripture. And I started studying that. And I started studying that in the context of different things. So um, like the earth and humanity and um, like just looking at sin, looking at uh, battles of oppression and all these different things. And so as I started studying that, and this was in my last couple of years of Uh, my undergrad, I basically realized, and this gets into my just overview of what I believe my position, is that I think the overarching story of scripture um, promotes liberation of women to uh, do whatever it is they feel called to do by the Holy Spirit. And um, I think putting a prohibition on women to actually teach contradicts that overarching narrative, Mm -hmm. which is what Jesus is doing and the Holy Spirit is doing to uh, reinstate humanity to their proper place um, as the image of God. And so I, uh, studying that, I started realizing that the reason that I had these views of complementarianism or the views that women couldn't teach were because of um, two, there's four, I have four prepared to talk about, but really two passages in scripture where it explicitly says that women should be quiet or women shouldn't teach. And we'll get to those in a minute for sure. Um, And I figured out that if you read the rest of, if you read those two verses through the lens of the entire narrative of scripture, you come to a different conclusion than what I was doing, which was taking those two verses and using them as the lens of which I read the rest of the narrative. So Interesting. that's how I came. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that John Piper uh, released oh a podcast episode <laughs> um, where he specifically said that to be a consistent complementarian would require to not allow and not permit women to teach in seminary classrooms. And uh, this is where I have to be honest and as upfront as possible is that that's whenever it became personal for me. And Mm -hmm. uh, because that was the first time that, and I, I mean, I had thought that I had had that problem of like, this is inconsistent, but it was the first time that I was really like, unless I am fighting for not fighting, but uh, have a position where I am actually arguing for women's equality and leadership roles in the church, then my calling is not going to be validated. Mm-hmm. And um, well, thanks, John Piper, for at least being consistent. Oh, yeah, it was great. I was, I was appreciative of it. It made me mad. And he, he drew me, a line in the sand. Yeah, for you kind yeah, of or but it was it was good to actually hear somebody say it because then it kind of pushed me forward to study more and develop this argument further. So. Yeah. Uh, OK, it's your turn. I want to hear a little <laughs> bit of your story. And so Stephen's been on the podcast before. At least once, maybe more. I mean, you've been in the studio helping. So yeah, just right. once on this side of the mic. Okay. But. Uh, but still, if people didn't listen to that one, tell us a little bit about you and uh, same thing, overarching thoughts. Um, you know, I'm 
kind of a similar story. I grew up in a in a broadly Christian household and uh, believed the gospel from a fairly young age. Went through a period, moved to Singapore in sixth grade and went through a period of hmm. real faith ownership. Where suddenly I had Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu friends. I had to ask the question, why do I believe what I believe? Is what I believe true? And so I got into apologetics at that point, and that's a big part of my I didn't know my that. story cool. is, is thinking through the rational arguments um, for the faith. And uh, so a lot of my story does revolve around around the the logical underpinnings more than the the <laughs> emotional. Um, and so discern kind of uh, through through a long period. I'd, similarly, I. So this is when your parents told you you have to go to college, and mine said the same thing. You actually went and succeeded, and I went to A and M and then flunked out a year and a half later because uh, I am I'm rebellious and lazy. So, uh, so I so flunked out of A and M and then went home and moved back in and you know had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And through a process of a few months, figured out I'm always at the church. I'm always serving. That's kind of where I fit. Um, and so started started down the road of trying to trying to do that as a career of sorts. Uh, I went to a College of Biblical Studies and then went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And um, all of that has kind of shifted and, and focused and morphed. But I was, it was funny, the thing that stood out to me the most, where I think we're going to end up disagreeing the most, that I didn't realize before when we had talked before, was, was the idea of calling, which mm-hmm. I have a totally different view of calling than you. I, I don't think that there are individual calls to pastoral or, or particular mm-hmm. careers. I think that there's a call to Christians to believe the gospel and that's it. The calling to which you're called is that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so an appeal to this is how I feel called has never held water for me at least. Cause I, I don't think like I wanted to be a pastor for a while and then I wanted to become a seminary teacher and plant a seminary. That's something I'd like to do. I still want to do that, but I don't feel called to it. I don't feel like I'm going to be betraying God or, mm-hmm. or going against something that God has set up for me. Uh, by by not doing that. Um, that would actually be an interesting podcast all on its own. Yeah. The idea of calling. Because I've always struggled with that too. Not that we're going to yeah. get bogged down in that, but yeah. But, but that, I mean, that's that's going to be a, a pretty big difference. What you just said, I think, was, yeah. was the thing that kind of was the final straw was I feel called to a particular thing and I have to have to change my view in light of that. Hmm. And that would be where I'd, I can't go there. I'm, I'm, I'm my big thing where, I, where my skin in the game is, so to speak, is, is I'm, I'm very concerned with what does the Bible say? I think the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. And you and I agree on that. We think that it is, that's the, the Bible is the thing that needs to dictate how we, how we live, how we practice, how we how we go about our faith. And so that's my, that's my only concern, really. I don't, it doesn't matter what I feel about it, or yeah. what I think about it. And quite frankly, there are some things, even in this passage, the, the, or the passages that you mentioned where I'm going, I in my flesh wish it didn't say that so that yeah. I would, could avoid difficult conversations, but it does say that. And then I affirm that it's the word of God. So I can either, yeah. I can either defend it or I can or I cannot. And that's that's where I land. It's like, I got to defend it. So here we go. Well, and I, what I love about both of these guys, gal guys, whatever, I hate the word gal. It sounds like you're 60 something. Anyway, is that both of you have a love for and very high value of scripture. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, often these things tend to be one person is like Bible says it and the other person's like, well, it feels, but both of you are like Bible says, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. And anyway, yeah. so. 
let's talk about the Bible. Uh, because you mentioned, or did you, do you feel like you kind of said your position? No, I guess I didn't. Yeah, my, I mean, that. my position is really very succinctly. It's almost exactly what, what first Timothy two says. Uh, Paul wrote, I do not print a one to teach your exercise, exercise authority over a man. And then I add the phrase in a church setting because of the context that starts in verse eight and ends down in chapter three, where he says, I, I write all of this so that your church to give you basically how the order of your church should go. So I think, all of this instruction has to do with how the church should function. The local church should function, and and specifically, uh, women should not teach or exercise authority over a man in a church setting. That's what is basically my view. Uh, so, a couple of clarifying questions before we jump into scripture. Uh, so, you actually think there's nothing wrong with a woman teaching in seminary? Would you say? Since it's I would I would setting. define oh. seminary as a church setting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's so, right. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say. Well, that's tricksy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think the division of seminary from the ministry of the church is an artificial and silly one that okay. comes mostly out of out of the Enlightenment and not out of Scripture. So, oh, so uh, many interesting. <laughs> I need to make a list of other podcasts we can do. Um, and then the other question. I have completely forgotten. What oh, what's a man? A man? <laughs> yes. What's a man? Yeah. I mean, we could, I, that's one of the ones I think is a, is a later question, but really briefly, I, I think that individual local church elders should define that for their local body. Uh, personally, I think it's 13 because when a boy becomes a man at 13, because when Paul wrote, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he would have defined the word man according mm-hmm. to his Jewish cultural context and a boy becomes a man when he's bar mitzvahed at 13. So yeah. that's where I go with it. But that's where I think you could argue, okay, there's a little bit of cultural discussion of yeah. definition of terms of... Uh, yeah, because if you've been on the dating scene, you know that there's plenty of guys out there that are <laughs> yeah. not... Yeah. I mean, oh, okay. pick your cultural marker. If it's 18 because that's when you're legal or it's sure. 21 because that's when you can drink or when you leave your parents' house or when you get married, yeah, whatever. All kinds of... Let the local elders decide and, mm-hmm. and, and establish that in the churches would be my position. Okay. So, if you were listening to the definitions of complementarian and egalitarian... On my right, your left, Stephen is the complementarian and Beth is the egalitarian. So Defining them purely by <laughs> can women be elders and yes. teach the Bible. Yeah, let's just yeah. think about that. Yeah, well, and so for the purposes of our conversation today, we are not even getting into men and women's roles like in the home and headship and all of yeah, and submission. And I think we will end up getting that because yeah, both will. of our views up, deal with that. Yeah, yeah you do. Are built on that. It's less, less I'm less concerned. About yeah. Um, can so, I, before we yeah. move to the passages, can yeah. I just say a little bit more about the calling thing? Because sure. I think this is interesting because yeah. I actually think we agree, which okay. is based on how I presented what I was saying, maybe there's slight nuance and difference. But mm. um, I actually hold to a view of calling where I think that all baptized Christians are called to ministry. Um, okay. Therefore, mm-hmm. I think all baptized Christians are called to uh, go, therefore, and teach, the, preach the gospel and teaching others the words of Jesus and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think that's a calling on all disciples of Jesus, which I think are all Christians, all followers of Jesus. Therefore, um, that actually is a huge part of my view is that I think that uh, if I think more people in the church need to be actively doing ministry, even pastoral ministry, um, because how we define pastoral would be mm-hmm. something like shepherding, yeah, right? And caring for a flock and caring for the people under your care. And so um, I think that America particularly has done a really bad job at making church a consumeristic thing mm-hmm. to where people mm-hmm. go to church and they 
receive something and they're not going to actively participate in their church so setting. So just to clarify, then you're saying that all Christians are, are called to ministry, mm-hmm. but you said that you specifically feel called yes. to in this, teach in yes. the seminary setting. So, and that's, and that's, I was about to get to the okay. clarify. So the only thing, I think the nuance, the difference is that I think that that is the like ultimate calling on all Christians would be to uh, minister the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think that sp- more specific callings do exist, but I think that they are purely based off of, uh, oh, I've said this so many times and now I'm blanking, um, skill and opportunity. Okay. Um, and so I think ability and opportunity can confirm any other more specific callings. And I don't even, I don't mean calling in the sense of like the way people talk about like, oh, I had a calling from God, but it's more like if you realize there's something that you want to do, oh, desire, desire, skill, and opportunity. I knew there, there we go. there's something you want to do. Good Trinitarian. Something you have been equipped to do and something that um, you've been given an opportunity to do. I think that that in itself, because I don't necessarily have a super high supernatural view of how God speaks to people. And right. I think those three things are enough for me to say, like, I've been, uh, I have a desire to teach pastors. I have been equipped, uh, through my education to study the Bible and teach the Bible. And I have been given opportunities to teach the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, if I continue pursuing my education and nobody ever gives me an opportunity to teach at a seminary, then I can say, okay, that's no longer my calling. So, um, but I think, yeah, that's what I would. Just to put a hypothetical on that, then the, I would agree actually a lot with that. Mm-hmm. The last one would be the opportunity. Would you say that the opportunity must be defined by by scripture? Like, what opportunities are open to you? And that's would the be def- that's talking. that's basically yeah. I, what we're I discussing. I think that is what we'll end up talking about. Yeah, because okay. I would say that if the opportunity is to preach the gospel in any capacity, then there shouldn't be a limit put on that. Okay. Um, and that's I think what I would say. Yeah. So we okay. can again that gets into the weeds. So. Yeah. Well, let's get into the weeds, which means getting into scripture. Um, you said something like there are four passages, but really two. <laughs> so should we just start with the Timothy one? I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, that's. Where I always start, I always end up back in Genesis 2, but I think it's better to start with Timothy to say, see why I'm going to Genesis 2. Why don't you then, Stephen, paint a picture for us of, I know you started to, but read it, expound a little bit, and then maybe take us back to Genesis, and then we'll let um, Beth kind of react and and build that out some. Yeah, so 1 Timothy 2, um, I would start in verse 8 is where the relevant context begins. I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold pearls, costly garments. I'm reading from NASB, by the way, if anybody's reading along. Uh, But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression And then NASB says in verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. I think that's a terrible translation as a side note. Um, (laughs) We're going to all take a drink every time Stephen mentions that something's a bad translation. Mentions something about translation, yeah. Uh, That that is my my want. And if anyone has questions Uh, about that last part about the childbearing, we did a podcast where we did like tricky questions. So I can direct you back to that since we're not talking about that today, but it's fun and interesting. Chapter three then goes into qualifications for elders. It's a trustworthy statement if, if any, it should say one, man aspires to the office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'd say the relevant context ends with uh, 
I'm writing these things, verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and pillar of the sport of the truth. And then he goes into a prayer. Um, so I say eight, two, eight to three fifteen is the, the relevant context. And then the really hard hitting verse that, that kind of summarizes where I come from is, is verse 12 of chapter two. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet quiet Heisukiya would be, be more like not disruptive, uh, lacking, lacking noise. Uh, not quite like, <laughs> I'm don't ever, don't ever like, it's not saying don't ever make your vocal, vocal cords vibrate. It's just saying be, be peaceable. Don't be disruptive. And, um, that, that's what he's saying with quiet. Um, so yeah. That, and then my view is basically that I, I think <laughs> I, I agree. And I say, I, I think he's correct in saying that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And the reason I think is just as important as the instruction. Anytime you're, you're looking at an instruction given in the Bible, you need to ask why. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they'll give an instruction where the reason is, well, that's how we do it in our culture, or that's, that's what's considered proper, which is the verse right before it, right? Uh, rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, make a claim to godliness is the reason for don't braid your hair and wear gold pearls and costly garments. So the instruction is, is not to wear gold hair, pearls, costly garments, but the reason is, uh, that's what's proper. Well, propriety, properness is very culturally definitional, right? What is proper in one one culture is not proper in another. So the timeless truth or the principle here would be modesty and discretion. Whatever the modesty and discretion in your culture looks like, that's how you should... Right. We can wear pearls. But right. That was saying something very specific about how they were wearing them. Exactly. Show off yeah, wealth. And so then the next instruction or command, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The reason given is not one that's based on culture, first century norms. It says, it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but woman, the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So something about the created order of Adam and Eve, the, it, it's not first century culture, it's the very first century's culture oh, that, that grounds <laughs> Adam, like the instruction is grounded in Adam and Eve yeah. and the creation of humanity, not that's how we do things nowadays. So, so that's where I go, okay, okay that's, that's explicitly cross-cultural. It's not like a, well there's some progress here or there's, well, there's no, it's, that's how it was then. That's still how it is now. And we are, we are headed for something else, resurrection in a new earth. But, uh, but I, if I, the ground for the instruction is Adam and Eve, then I don't see how we can disregard it in the present age. That's, that's basically my view. I know you have lots of thoughts before we go there. I have a question that's, it's mostly unrelated, but I'm just curious since I have you here. Mm -hmm. uh, this, the thing about Adam not being deceived, but it was Eve. But we also know that Adam sinned. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what like, there's more condemnation on Adam. Right. right. Adam took the fruit knowingly. He was not deceived about it. He knew the uh, instruction. Okay. He said, I'm not supposed to eat that. I know rebellion. I'm not supposed to eat it. I'm going to eat it. Right. Eve, it seems, was a little bit mis mistaken. Like or misguided, yeah. Misinformed. She, she was deceived, is yeah. what Paul says. The woman Over being served. deceived fell into transgression. Yeah. And when you see her quote the instruction not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, back in Genesis three, mm -hmm. uh, she quotes it differently than the way God gave That's it right. to Adam prior to her creation. Now we don't know if if God gave it to Adam and told Adam to tell it to Eve. We don't know if God told it to the both of them, or He told it to Adam, then He told it to Eve, or or what. But we know God told it to Adam. He creates woman. 
woman misquotes what God told Adam. Yeah. Some sort of a breakdown in communication there. And I think that's that's kind of wrapped up in it. Okay. The other thing that I, we haven't actually covered is I do take literal human Adam and Eve. Do you also? Or Oh, here we go. Because that's pretty, <laughs> pretty pivotal to my view. Honestly, I, uh, I think I... <laughs> She was not prepared for no, this question. I, this is actually something that's been coming up a lot. Um, I actually don't necessarily think that it really matters. Um, I okay. see Adam and Eve as a representation of humanity. And if it's literal, it doesn't change the fact that I still think they're a representation of humanity okay. as a whole. And therefore, I'm happy to... I've always discussed them as if they were literal, but I'm not I'm not going to die on that hill. Okay. Yeah. And would you say when they're representative of humanity, would you say Adam is representative of man in this case and Eve is representative of woman in this case where those distinctions uh, of sex are bound to those two characters if there are um potentially so i haven't really thought too much on that question more okay. so that i see like their act of rebellion against god is representative of all of humanity's act of rebellion against god and the exact way and means of how that happened because i interpret first timothy different than you yeah. it's less uh it's less pivotal to the understanding of what was going on for okay. me what's more important is that they both ate the fruit and rebelled against God, and they both suffered consequences for it. So talk okay. us through how you look at this verse. Yeah, so actually, I hate starting at First Timothy 2. I think okay. it's the wrong place to start. Where do you want to start? Um, I, uh, like I said, I start from a biblical theology. And so if um, there's actually a book, and I'm going to recommend it because I think she actually says things more eloquent than I do, and better for you to have had her here. But um, her name is Lucy Pepiot, and she wrote a book called Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. Um, and she just goes through every single passage, like complicated passage, and breaks it down. Um, and I agree with her mostly, not totally, but mostly. Um, and I think she saves First Timothy 2 as the very last chapter she deals with, and that's because... Uh, what Stephen is doing is he has just built his entire theology uh, of women in the church and how they can behave in the church and what's permitted of them, what's not permitted of them from uh, nine through thir- eight through 15. Is that seven? Seven verses? My math isn't very It went into the two, two, eight yeah. through three, 15. Okay, okay. So, so a, a little bit. But, and also yes. not my entire <laughs> theology yes, of women. Yes, I mean, that's sorry. a little bit straw manning. But, but, but. <laughs> whenever you're asked, what's your view of women in the church? You quote this passage and you leave it pretty much. At, I mean, you say there are other reasons for that, but you really do use this as like your primary text. Yeah. And so because of that, I, that's, I think... So basically what I learned to do and what started making more sense for me was going back and starting in Genesis 1, uh, taking Genesis 2 into consideration, um, then Genesis 3, and then going into the New Testament and what Jesus promised and what he brings. Um, And then going into the book of Acts and looking at all of the women who were doing stuff in the book of Acts. And I know we disagree on Phoebe, and I definitely think we need to talk about that. but, But I think that like there are so many... Uh, so, so walk us through, like yes. start. I mean, we don't have time to yes. go through the whole yeah. Bible, but walk us through sort of a. I have this written down so it won't go yeah. too it off into different tangents. But um, so I hold to. I always start with five general statements or five general things that I think will be uncontroversial. I really do think that most Christians who hear what I'm about to say will agree with me. Um, and so the first is that God created humanity, both male and female in his image. And what that means is that God created human humanity to share in his qualities and attributes. Um, and another way of saying that is that he created them to represent him on the earth. And so um, meaning that they are going to be God's representative rulers, almost like his viceroys or his ambassadors to the rest of creation. 
um, and that it is them, both of them, who are supposed to do that. Uh, so humanity, both male and female, were created to love and rule creation on God's behalf. Uh, whether this is what the image of God uh, means in Genesis 1.28, I don't necessarily think it matters because that's a mandate he gives to them immediately after. Can I real quick... Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're you're assuming in there then they're they're both there as viceroys rulers representatives mm-hmm. and you're assuming I think or mm-hmm. that they're supposed to be rulers and viceroys in the same way. Yes. Okay. And that I would disagree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, so and I'll, okay. I'll get to why I think. Right. But uh, that's I'm going to start there with Genesis okay. uh, and I'm just going to use scripture. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, uh, let us create man in our own image and the image of God. We created them male and female. He created them and let them rule over or let them have dominion over creation mm-hmm. be fruitful and multiply. So mm-hmm. using that as my basis and we'll get to Genesis 2 when I go on. But I'm going to start with just that. Second thing would be the fall, which corrupted humanity, both male and female in such a way that they're unable to properly fulfill their role as God's ambassadors. And I think that uh, meaning specifically that their relationships with each other and their relationships with God are flawed. And so they can't do what they're supposed to do, which is represent God's loving relationships with them. Third would be that God did not intend to leave things that way. And so with the same breath that he condemned uh, them to their consequences, he also proclaimed the very first promise of the Messiah mm-hmm. who's going to crush the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. I think we can all agree. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is the proto yes, yeah, yeah, I agree. That's, yeah. we're, we're, if we're good on that, then we can continue. Uh, Although Genesis 3.16, <laughs> 17, 18, we might disagree because I have a different view of that, but keep going. Okay, yes. No, we definitely disagree. <laughs> Podcast idea number 47. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so he proclaimed the consequences of humanity's sin, and then he proclaimed how those consequences would be resolved through the offspring of the woman. So as we just agreed. Then uh, fourth thing would be that the Old Testament demonstrates the faultiness of the human condition through showing the cycle of human rebellion against God. So the same thing that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden happens repeatedly, repe- repeatedly throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, yeah, showing the cycle of rebelling against God um, and God's continuous promise and covenant that this Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent comes along. Uh, and then number five, this is the very last thing um, of my overarching biblical theology would be the New Testament tells the story of and explains the significance of the promised offspring who is Jesus, tells that Jesus came to start a new creation or a new humanity um, where the old humanity dies with Christ. This is where I use uh, Paul um, dies with Christ. The new humanity is born and this humanity is defined by the spirit of God who dwells inside of humanity and is conforming them to the image of Christ, which is also the image of God. So we are now being reconformed into the image of God through the spirit that lives inside of us, um, which this requires. We're being reconformed to fulfill our role as God's ambassadors and representatives. And again, we would disagree slightly, but not a, if you want to go listen to the other show I was on where we talked about the Holy Spirit, a lot <laughs> yeah, of that yeah, is yeah, what yeah. feeds into where yeah, we disagree. That's one of the questions I we don't have think it, Do you really think that the Holy Spirit affects like sanctification, though? Making us more like yeah. Christ. Yeah, that's that's really all yeah, I'm trying to say. Right. I don't, it's not, I have less concern about the gifts <laughs> in, in this. <laughs> she has thoughts. They both have lots of thoughts for lots of podcasts. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so if we start with that, then my four principles for women, these are way shorter so I'm, that i'm pretty okay, take uh, it away first is that women can y'all tell that she's a teacher <laughs> yeah right uh women as well as men were created to represent god and rule the earth is what i think is evidence in genesis 1 and 2 um 2 
Genesis 2 we'll definitely talk about and break down, but I think that the word uh, helper and the word uh, rib have been translated incorrectly in most English translations. Um, Therefore, I think the word helper is a fulfilling kind of help. That means that the role of man cannot be accomplished, the role of him to be the image of God can totally be accomplished without the woman coming alongside him. I would say empowering. I, I think Azer is best best understood as empowering yeah. help. Yeah, but uh, it's a, I think that the work can't be completed without the without the help. Yep. Um, and so it's, and vice versa, right? Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's what like I a would woman say. can't mm-hmm. also complete hers without yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I think that like yes, for humanity to be humanity and fulfill its role as God's image bearers and ambassadors, uh, you need both male and female representation. Yeah. Um, and and so that's my, and then rib is its side. It's an architectural yeah. term for the side of a building. So it's like the whole half of Adam, not just one Poor guy. piece of him. We thought he lost a rib, he uh, lost half of himself. So for me, like that's metaphor, like, I mean, you could say it's mm. literal, but I think that that's a metaphorical illustration of how uh, women completes humanity. Mm. Um, and without that, it's how they would not be. Complement each other, right? Hey. Yeah, totally. Okay. Theology okay. jokes, y'all. I genuinely, we'll get to this, yeah. but I think that the importance is that they're different. I think yeah. the reason for my view is actually that I think male and female are incredibly different. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Everyone here is getting canceled, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I'm going to make all the complementarians mad. She's going to make all the egalitarians mad. It's Good fine. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the second thing would be that the fall was the introduction of the hierarchy between male and female. And I think this is where you and I are primarily and fundamentally going to disagree. And where I would want to ask questions about First Timothy 2. We need to get yes. back to that eventually. Yes, Because yes, that's what he appeals we to. We definitely will. He does. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, that is the, yes, the introduction of hierarchy and conflict in the relationship between uh, male and female. So when um, God proclaims to women that uh, her desire, or to Eve, that her desire will be for her husband and he shall rule over her, I think that that is a negative consequence of her actions, not a proclamation of the God's order. intended order for yeah. creation. Yeah, and that's where I have a totally different view of that. I think that's talking about Jesus, not about the relationship of men and women. Very and interesting. So, I'll have to see your you see your sources. So yeah, we might get into that, and I can I can show you where it comes <laughs> Y'all, from. We are not going to have time for that. <laughs> no, I'll okay. tell you right I'm now. So sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. Moving yeah. on. All right. Then the last thing is that all humans are called to uh, and given the gifts and the abilities to minister the gospel, and that includes teaching. That includes being able to study scripture and being a good and gifted teacher to be able to communicate that to others, and that. Um, the spirit is the one that enables you to, uh, best be able to do that. Uh, and that people should be allowed to exercise those giftings and callings in whatever way they have ability, opportunity and desire. Okay, let me clarify something. So if people are listening and they've, and you feel like maybe this is going over your head a little bit, it, is what you're saying essentially that everything was good and, and pretty equal, not mm-hmm. different, but equal, right? Before the fall, mm-hmm. but the fall corrupted things. And so as we try to go back to, or, you know, get better, mm-hmm. like through Christ, through our sanctification to this sort of pre-fall state or even better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are like slowly but surely going back to these roles where there's yeah. equality. Yeah. Okay. So I basically, I think what's important is that the distinction, I think, where we're going to say is that there is no hierarchical, hierarchical view of authority in my in the mind of God's view of gender until the fall. Okay, so then um, what do you do with the Timothy passage given this? Yes, so that's so, and I I just want to clarify again that I see that message being said throughout the entirety of Scripture. So mm-hmm. when we get to the Book of Acts. 
Um, and I'm, I know I will get to Timothy. I keep saying Timothy is <laughs> the last thing I want to deal with because all these things are so vital before yeah. I get to actually saying, okay, now how am I going to parse this one verse um, or passage? Uh, and so I hold to something called a redemptive hermeneutic, mm-hmm. um, which is it was introduced to me by a man named Oh, what is his first name? I don't remember. His last name is Webb. Um, it's mm-hmm. with two Bs. And the book is called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. And it's basically um, talking about how the way we should evaluate, evaluate cultural context within scripture um, and whether or not uh, commands or whatever are transmiss- transmittable from... Transmittable? Well, yes. for our purposes, uh, it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from um, one context to the next is to look at how um, the surrounding cultures treated the issue. So um, he would say that if you look at slavery in the context of the Hebrew Bible and the context of the New Testament in the Roman Empire, um, slavery was held and was pretty brutal in those surrounding cultures and God's call to slavery and for the Israelite people, whenever he was talking about bond servants and slavery and that issue was much more generous, much more merciful, much mm-hmm. more liberating for those people. Um, or it was Moses constant was stepping up. Yes. Right. And then in the New Testament, the same thing. Slaves, masters were told to care for their slaves. Um, Paul straight up tells uh, Philemon to free Onesimus. Like slaves at that point were being given more and more liberation as the culture around them started to get tighter on the issue and wanted to treat slaves worse. Um, and then for homosexuality, and this again going to get me in trouble. Not really. Everybody knows I hold this view. Homosexuality, uh, not even homosexuality. Let me just say sexual immorality in general, sexuality. Mm. Um, The surrounding cultures were always way more liberating and more liberal and allowed for way more and allowed for cult temple prostitution, allowed for uh, homosexuality, allowed for multiple... Well, I guess in some of the Old Testament, the people were allowed multiple wives, but were, were allowed prostitution. Like all these things were allowed mm-hmm. and Christianity said, no, like we're going to we're going to be more conservative on this issue while you guys are more progressive. We're going to be more conservative. Um, and so with women, I think that the primary thing that motivates me is that. I see in the surrounding culture oppression of women and women are treated like property. Women are um, not given a voice. Women are not allowed to run their households. Women are not allowed to manage money. They're not allowed to make business deals. Um, they're yeah, not treated with dignity, not treated with value. And Christianity comes along and says, no, Steps it up. women yeah. have value. And so they respond more progressive and more liberating than the surrounding cultures do. Um, and I see that I mean, the evidence of that is that there have always been more female Christians than male Christians. And I think that's because females see Christianity as an opportunity for liberation, an opportunity to be Hmm. freed from this oppression that they have experienced for like from the end of time. And I think that's evident in the Bible with all of the terrible stories of things that happen to women. Um, Let me clarify something. You said that you uh, hold something that's called a redemptive hermeneutic. Would a simple way to understand that a hermeneutic is kind of like how we read scripture, right? The lens and the understanding. So would you say it's kind of about trajectory, Mm -hmm. like the trajectory in the Bible for... I was going to ask you, you uh, so it's a trajectory hermeneutic. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so like the the he's constantly stepping things up mm-hmm. for more freedom, less yes, oppression yes. for slaves, for women. But when it comes to sexuality, it's sort of it's a static. Tighter. There's mm-hmm. always yeah. a call to purity, mm-hmm. right? Okay, and so exactly. making those distinctions helps us see that like if yes. the trajectory was begun, then we can sort of assume that God wants to continue mm-hmm. that and is continuing that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And especially given what I see in Genesis 1 and 2 about women and men having equal authority in their role as God's image bearers. Um, And so with that being said, 
1 Timothy 2. So and once I get to that point, and once I have all of this stuff in Paul's letters, like Paul primarily, and in Acts when Paul is dealing with people um, who is giving women opportunity and giving women these positions, um, you've got Phoebe, you've got Chloe, you've got Lydia, like I can mm-hmm. list the names. Um, uh, you've got the women in Philippians who, uh, we don't have to talk about that, but uh, anyway, so <laughs> Lots of women. there's a lot of women and they're all doing stuff and they're all obviously have roles and they're all very involved, which in the surrounding cultures would not have been heard of. Um, and so with that being said, I know based on my whole reading of scripture that women are given opportunity and women are given a calling to minister the gospel the same way that men are because um, I see it. And then, so when I get to First Timothy, I, this is where people, you're probably not going to like this, but I, <laughs> I don't am, think he likes a lot of what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I've disagreed I, with most of what you said, I, but that's okay. Good, good. <laughs> oh, cheers. Uh, I am convinced that as long as there is a reasonable reading of the passage um, that is not restricting women from teaching in all contexts all the time or in church context all the time, that there's not something that makes this transferable. Like as long as I have some sort of contextual evidence that can tell me that this is not actually a transferable command to everyone, uh, it doesn't even really matter like specifically how it is. It just matters that there are potential arguments and potential reasons for it. And I have them. I have plenty of them. So so this are you is, saying yes. that given everything you know, yes. you can now look at this passage in Second yes. Timothy and say, say there must be some contextual reason that that yeah. was for a particular... Well, I can say as long as there is a logical to contextual explanation, then that's enough. That satisfies it for me. And when you're saying contextual, what yes. you mean is historical context, yes. not literary. Exactly. Yes. And yes. this is where... I was, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because when we, when we met and we talked, it was like, yeah, no, I want to base this off of the Bible. Uh-huh. But it's, it's just the same old thing. It's what it clearly, obviously the words say, it doesn't mean that. Okay. And I just can't go there. Yeah. What? Well, so here's the thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to take the words that we get to and we'll mm-hmm. talk about them. So, uh, well, first to give the historical context, cause I think it's important. Cause I think there are people out there who are like, yeah, it says that. And if it says that, then I have to take it and I can't go anything against it. And the thing is, is that yes, it says it, but if you understand the context, it allows what it's saying to have meaning that like you can't know without understanding the context and context is important whenever you're doing interpretation. Right. But the relevant historical context for an argument is always included in the argument. Yeah. Uh, so where, where I've got to go is, is, if we're going to appeal to broader culture, he needs to mention the broader culture. Mm. So and, I think he does. If you okay, look, okay. So, so yeah, let's. So l- here's the thing: is there's a scholar. What is his first name? His last name's Hogue, um, H O A G. You're not forget with the first uh, name. I know. I can't never That's remember okay. them. Uh, it's an academic thing. You don't ever mention people by their first names. Uh, but so Hogue, he. Uh, when he was writing or he was studying Paul and he was studying Timothy and around the same time that he was writing, like and this, I think is purely by the act of God in the world and him making this happen. Um, there was a novel, a, a old Greek novel that was written um, or that was set in Ephesus, which we all know mm-hmm. that's where they were. That's where Timothy's church was. And it's set in Ephesus and there was a, uh, or so yes, the first Timothy is written to a church in Ephesus. This novel was set in Ephesus and it's talking about this. It's a love story between this couple who one of them is one of the leaders of the temple of Artemis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the novel is called Ephesachia. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, the argument. Yeah. And um, so, and so what happens but the basically, yeah. And so 
What it is, is at the exact same time that this guy was studying, like just a few years before that, when he's like, I'm going to study First Timothy, this novel was redated by not just like, not people who had any dog in this fight. They didn't care about this argument. They just were reevaluating their architectural evidence and the evidence of the language and the manuscripts and everything that they had. And they were like, oh, this is actually a first century, le- a first century novel. Which means that it was written at the same time Paul would have been writing this. Okay, book. get to the. Yes, so, sorry. what is the sorry, context? Sorry. I'm okay. only saying that because I yes. know Stephen no, no, no. has lots you're of good. thoughts, you're and good. I. So, uh, so all that to say, uh, the Temple of Artemis was a huge place in the city of Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a female. It was a goddess, which mm-hmm. means she was a female. The uh, leaders in the in the temple were all women. There's plenty of historical mm-hmm. evidence to say this. They all had the novel itself describes these ceremonies and these parades that they would do where they would all dress like the goddess. And the word here that Paul uses, like the exact word that he uses with braided hair, gold and pearls and expensive apparel Mm -hmm. are the exact same words in the novel that describe what's going on here. So like assuming people were familiar with like what people wore to these festivals and to these Artemis festivals, just by him using the exact same language that they would have been familiar with, he is referencing it. And uh, so there's that. And then he might be referencing might be. it. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's, right. that's fair. It's, uh, it's an illusion at best. And here's the problem. Here's my problem with that. I've heard that argument before. One, it's he might be. Mm-hmm. He could have so easily said, I do not permit a woman to teach. Not like they do in the Ar- Artemis mm-hmm. temple. Yeah. He could have been a lot clearer. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, so- and we're talking about a novel that was written supposedly in the first century. And I'll mm-hmm. go with you on that. But he's writing to Christians mm-hmm. who are not people who are going to have access to the latest novel of the day. But they Christians, by and large, are the ones who are yeah. who are so struggling novel, to survive. Getting, like not, you said, the liberation thing. Yeah, we're talking about the the elites and the upper class and and whatnot who the are going to have access to this novel. That, that is an <laughs> so allusion me, to a novel me, that you haven't read. Me. Isn't so going to hold water. It's actually not the allusion to the novel. This is what's important. Okay. The novel is giving descriptions of what's going on in the temple. So it's allusion an allusion to what's going on in the temple at the time. I'm not, I don't think at all that the people would have read the novel. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying the novel describes what's going on in the temple it tells us. and yeah. tells, and it's using the exact, like every letter and or every word in this passage from Timothy is found in the novel is uh, what Hogue found. Right. And so, and also something that I really want to make sure that I emphasize because I haven't said this yet is the way that Timothy introduced or Paul introduces the command when he says that I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority of the, over a man. And mm-hmm. the point here is that she he's not just saying that he's not saying women are not allowed or he's not making a blank. Yeah, he's yeah. using this phrase of like I personally am not permitting this, which and again, I'm saying I'm making maybe arguments because based on all of scripture, I think mm-hmm. that there has to be something and so maybe arguments are actually good enough for me. And they may not be for you and that's okay, but they're good enough for me. And so if I can say that there is a reason like if Timothy wrote a letter to Paul and said, all of these women who were recent converts from Artemis are here and they're up here teaching false doctrine and I don't know what to do about it. And Paul responds with, yeah, it's not permissible for them to teach or exercise authority over a man. Stop disrupting point. being yeah. yeah. And so there's that. I also want to make sure that we acknowledge that the word uh, 
teach and exercise authority over a man does not exist in anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's very rare in other literature from the time as well. And so translating that word is actually pretty difficult. You're talking um, about authentane. Yes. To to exercise authority. Uh, yes. To yeah, teach yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah, all yeah, over yeah. the place. Sorry, sorry. Yes. And to, then to andros is all over the place. So. And so the it's primarily the like domineering nature of it is something that Paul, he's not just saying like don't have authority. He has he's has a very specific type of authority in mind, which again shows me that it's contextual. He could have used any that. other word. Like it has to be something that was going on in that church. Uh-huh. And he's saying, don't do this. Um, okay, I'm gonna pause again, you. okay, and that's where I'm like, yeah. all right, show me. In the, and then why does he reference Adam and Eve? Mm-hmm. If that's the yeah, reason, I, have thoughts, I know. I'm just the moderator. I think that I, I mean, have your thoughts. So. If, <laughs> if that's the fun. reason, then the support for the argument would be that. Mm-hmm. But that's not the support yeah. for the argument. And so, to, on the thing that you keep referencing back to is throughout all of scripture, I see this and this, da, 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 mm-hmm. but. What you set up and where I stopped you in your in your initial six things was you're saying that the that the idea of hierarchy and hierarchy or authority, but the idea of headship is how it would be classically used. He says, for it was Adam who was first created mm-hmm. and then Eve, mm-hmm. which means his argument is bound up in pre-fall, not post-fall. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that well prefall is this this utopian egalitarian thing and that's going to determine everything else again he doesn't say that yeah. mm-hmm. he says it's prefall mm-hmm. that this concept of male headship exists mm-hmm. so it's it's like why does he reference Adam and Eve and Maybe your your idea of this yeah. biblical theology I think your biblical theology is just off a little bit mm-hmm. because yeah then this would line up. So, and to respond to that, like, I think that his reference, and again, you're not going to like this. Uh, We already knew that before we started. That's why we're doing this. His reference to Adam and Eve here reads much more to me like a contextual analogy that he is pulling from because, again, in the Temple of Artemis, what they are doing is they are promoting the superiority of women. They are saying, oh, women are better. Women in, like, because Artemis was notoriously known for being this goddess who is like all full of herself and who is manipulate men and and everything is about how stupid and dumb and terrible men are like she is your classic third wave feminist (laughs) at the time and I think that's what Paul is encouraging them to do is to stop preaching this bad theology and I think this is what you were talking about is that like the theology of Artemis is saying that women were created first or women are they're not superior. Uh, they have the superior. Gnosis, They're right? not deceived. They're yeah. smarter. They're able to manipulate men because men are stupid. They're idiots. So this makes like for me, I read as soon as I know that that context is there, I can read this. And Paul is saying, as oh, soon as someone look, suggests that that context is there, that's my point. All of yeah. this it's is historical evidence. It's, though. It's well, hold on one second, Beth. Except that I mean, it, it, you're creating a narrative and you're saying this must be the culture. And this must be this must be determinative of how we read the text. And what you're suggesting, and where we again, the trajectory hermeneutic. I just can't go with you because mm-hmm. what is your trajectory towards? What is your upper yeah. limit? What's your bottom limit? What we have is the text. Mm-hmm. We, and in my opinion, I, I agree with you on the on the emphasis of biblical story, biblical theology. In any story, the storyteller gives storyteller gives you the information you need to understand the story. Yeah. So, in my opinion. We don't actually need any historical context to understand every single word in here. We need the Bible. The Bible is the context. Mm-hmm. And 
if you're going to if you're going to go to all of your arguments have to come from it doesn't say it here it says it somewhere else that's right and that's why i'm disappointed because i thought when we when we sat down to lunch it was like no i actually care about yeah. accounting for what the bible I actually do. says uh, and I... you're you're just saying well no no i'm saying that we don't have to listen to this because of x y or z reason can i ask Can you I, a question isn't then? there it's it's in history or it's in it's in what we what we suppose not what we know let me ask you a question you said something like um We don't have to know the sort of historical context. Everything is understandable as you read it. This last part, which I don't really want to get into explaining, (laughs) but the the childbearing, do you not read that and go, wait, what? Does that not sound a little I read it in Greek and I go, no, that makes sense. Oh, well, it's all Greek to me. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll give you a quick, really quickly. Yeah. What I think is a much better translation. If you're reading this in NASB, you'll see women is italicized because the word isn't there. The translators are adding Mm. that in to help you out. It's a singular feminine verb. But she will be saved through the birth of the child. Who's the she? Eve. Who's the birth of the child? Christ. If they continue in faith, love, sanctity with self-restraint, who's the they? Well, he goes on to explain. It's a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. The church. That's what I think is going on in verse 15. Okay, so when you read it in Greek, it's not confusing to you. It's it's pretty plain yeah. what it means. Okay. It's a singular it's a singular verb. It's a it's a singular feminine verb. It's not women, it's she. Yeah. That clears I, I it all up asked, for me. I only asked that because I thought surely there are times when you read the Bible and you find a verse and for me this was one of those where you read it and you're like that doesn't make sense, yeah. right? And I don't speak Greek or read Greek. And so when I see women will be saved through childbearing, I think, well, I know some Christian women that can't have children. So it must not mean that. Mm-hmm. It must mean something else. And it forces me to have to expand and be like, well, okay, who is he talking to? What's going on at the time? And you're saying we shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. So I'm to. saying he's so referencing saying back she, to the text. To okay. Eve, right? To Eve. Yeah. Through the childbirth, the yeah. one that was promised in 315. Yeah. So yeah. like, I'm not saying we disagree about that. No, I was I only using I'm that as a... Okay. the consequence of... But when will she be saved? It's if the church continues in faith, love, sanctity, and Christ returns, yeah. you have the resurrection. I, I don't think, that, I don't think that, that is as clear that they will be saved if they continue in faith and that stuff is as clear that that's the church and it's not the women that he's talking about because it could very easily be saying that... Uh, she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing, as opposed to Artemis, who says that having children is a bad thing. Again, if yeah, we use the context, that's really important. Paul is very clearly referencing these teachings of Artemis. And then what goes on there Again, is then saying... Paul is very re- clearly t- re- referencing these teachings of Artemis. He doesn't say that. Yeah. That's true. I mean... But if, if Timothy... We also have to keep in mind, like, the like genre of the book. It's a letter. It's a letter. It is yeah. a personal letter written to his friend responding to something that the friend wrote him. When you write a personal letter to somebody, you don't go back and say, now... Uh, regarding all the things that you said, like according to Artemis, they say this. He doesn't have to explain it to Timothy. Timothy knows about the temple of Artemis. But we don't. Yeah. But at the same time, like we are, we have again, the ability to you're look assuming it up Timothy it. knows about the temple of Artemis. Sure. You're assuming. Yeah. That's all the entire argument you're is based on a historical assumption. Yeah. And, and I'm saying if that the your argument needs to come. doesn't matter when Paul's writing a personal letter. I'm saying. I'm saying the text doesn't actually matter. I'm saying the entire argument needs to come from the text, not from an assumption. Okay. That's On that that's note, it. how about this? Because we're almost out of time and we've been on one verse. Is there one more verse we might want to explore? That might offer some, to shed some light on this. Not that we can do in three minutes. Well, we can go over <laughs> a little bit, but uh, I just didn't know. I mean, this I is mean, the tricky this verse, is right? What, like, I, I guess I, I would rather just say, that, I mean, 
basically the the thing that you've mentioned is is there's only one verse or there's only four verses and basically i need to reinterpret those four verses in light of what what i'm yeah. considering the biblical theology mm-hmm. that i see in the rest of the bible and i i agree that biblical theology is incredibly important and it should guide our interpretation so you should always appeal back to the bible not to other things which is why i have a problem with your argument yeah. in this passage well, but what i would rather would rather say is is the other side of that is how many verses have to say something for it to be the inerrant authoritative word of God. Sure. And how many verses have to say something okay. for you to... But tell me again, we've talked about this, but tell me, so why do you not greet every brother with a holy kiss when you walk in the Yeah, church? that was rude. Neither of you gave me a kiss. <laughs> yeah, that was what I was referencing said, before. He says greet everyone with a holy kiss. Absolutely. So tell me about that again. Yeah, there's, there's what I was saying was there's, 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 Commands or arguments given with explicitly historical yes, but context. But you were making the decision. Well, wait, wait, wait. Let, let them finish. There's, ar- there's commands or arguments given with explicitly historical cultural context. There's commands or arguments given with explicitly cross-cultural context for support. And there's commands or arguments given with no support. The ones that are given with no support, um, you can argue that you can argue not necessarily that you don't have to follow them, but you can at least argue that it's culturally bound, mm-hmm. right? Where the support is explicitly non-culturally bound, you can't make that argument. But if historical context can tell you that it is culturally bound, then I don't see how that's any different than me making the assumption that, oh, historical but context the, tells me this. The text. We're saying that, oh, there's no no reason given, so I don't have to do this. Like, it's the same. You're doing hmm. the same thing. Hmm. I'm really not, though, because the text is explicitly cross-cultural. So the well, the kiss, text, the kiss text it's only isn't explicit. Yeah. Sorry? The, the text about greeting each other with a holy kiss says that it's for that time? No. What does it say? I'm saying that, I'm saying that this passage, 1 Timothy 2, right. is explicitly cross-cultural. If there's no... Honestly, even if there is a, a, a cross-cultural thing that there's, that's not bound to a particular... You can still argue that it, that it doesn't apply now, but your argument can't be grounded in that was cultural. So that's why? the only thing you can't say yeah. when the when the support mm-hmm. is but explicitly cross cultural. The only argument you can't make is it was cultural. Well, if there's logical <laughs> and like historical evidence to say that it could be cultural, I think you can make that argument. As much as I can assume that that's cultural, as much as you can assume the holy kiss thing is not culture or is cultural as well. And then like even on top of that, tell me again why you think that in this verse Paul is straight up saying women cannot teach, they cannot have authority, they can't. They speak. cannot teach or exercise authority over a man in a church context. Women absolutely can teach. They should teach. In this letter, he instructs women to teach other women. There's particular contexts so in which gifts Priscilla, are supposed to be given. Uh, correcting with authority, with her husband, hmm. correcting uh, non-church settings. Teaching. Non-church. He was settings. just preaching the gospel and proclaiming truth, and then she calls him aside and corrects. Calls him, him aside. That you just said it. They walked outside the <laughs> yeah, church building. Yeah, all right, it's, that's fine. Oh, that's, and I would <laughs> say I'd. Uh, I, on my own podcast, I went through and, and gave the the one hour version of my view. Mm-hmm. Where so, uh, if you want to go listen to my podcast, and I ex- addressed exactly that. Yeah, absolutely, women can and should teach. Mm-hmm. All gifts are given to be exercised in a particular way. Hmm. All of them. All of them have particular limitations. It's a question of what limitations do they have, mm-hmm. and do those limit are those limitations explicit in the text? And this one is okay. Here's why I want to end this because uh, we, you're right. We don't have time to climb into another. Uh, entire passage of scripture. But uh, I have just a couple like rapid fire questions. They're mostly for you, Stephen, but I want to hear you. I mean, I think I already know how you guys will answer these, but 
How about um, you just said something about teaching in the church. So teaching outside the church, say I'm at my house in a Bible study and I'm teaching men and women. Yeah, intrinsic to my view would be defined in a church setting. I would say any place where, where multiple believers are gathered for the purpose of the worship of the triune God, which would involve instruction, it would involve uh, singing praise, it would involve prayer to God. Uh, anytime that those things are going to occur... A woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And it okay. should be done, in my opinion, under the authority of a particular elder who is who is overseeing, that's what the word means, that particular gathering of okay. the local church. So, oh, never mind. I was going to be snarky, but I'm just the moderator. Okay. Um, what about women doing things in the front of the church that are not teaching? So, say, praying. It totally depends on on what we're talking about. If, if it falls under the category of Teaching, didoskein, or authentain, exercising authority over. So she's saying the Lord's Prayer. Amen. She's leading people in the Lord's Prayer. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm not you trying want, to trip you up. Yeah, I'm just trying to hear what the distinctions are. You want yeah. my opinion? Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay. That's fair. That's um, it, I, I generally err towards uh, be more conservative than, than more liberal. That is such a shock. <laughs> Surprising, I know. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. And you already answered the question about seminary. That is basically an extension of the church. Uh, and so that would be a no as well. Yeah. And then here's a question. What about single women or widowed women uh, who are the heads of their own home? Do you think there's any difference there in the way that they can be in leadership, say a deacon, deaconess or something like that? Again, I, I addressed the, the deacon, deaconess thing in my podcast episode. It was called Can Women Be Deacons uh, uh, or Should Women Be Deacons? Anyway, um. As for single women, married women, um, widowed women, all of those arguments can be be brought up. I think it takes a lot more time to to suss through it. Short answer is no. The the distinction here is not between uh, marital status. It's not it's a between headship in the sex. home versus headship in the church. Yeah, kind of deal. It's, it's just it's the distinction that Paul is making. A woman must is not teach over a man. I think the context is pretty clearly talking about women, not wives. The yeah. word can be translated both ways. So that's that's an argument I'm willing to, mm -hmm. to engage with. Like if, we're, yeah. if we want to approach this as saying married women cannot teach or exercise authority over husbands, mm -hmm. over her husband. Yeah. It, okay, that, that one's more grounded in I, the text. That argument I'm actually complete, completely comfortable with too because it affirms the rest of what I see in scripture. Again, I, I, I'm <laughs> happy with any argument that is not just like blanket statement. Paul says this one time in the Bible, therefore it has to be applied to everyone all the time. Because okay. I just don't think so that makes So here's sense. the thing. We are technically out of time. Mm -hmm. So here's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll do part two or something sometime. <laughs> um, but why don't you each, if you want to, kind of like a last word, sentence, thought, if you want to leave people with it, maybe something you didn't get a chance to say you want to say quickly, and then we're going to wrap this up. Anything? Yeah. I think ultimately part of what is at the center of the complementarian argument is that there is a goal for women and there's a goal for men and in light of their Christianity, that women are supposed to fulfill whatever role they're supposed to fulfill and men are supposed to fulfill their role, which includes being a pastor or a teacher because that's permitted for them. It's not permitted for women. And in that, I think we're completely like negating the fact that all Christians are called to just be conformed to the image of Christ. And all Christians are called to minister the gospel. And I think to say that women cannot exercise their abilities, because now we live in a culture where women are able to get the same education as men. We, I think if anybody is wanting to say that women are inferior to men in any way whatsoever, that there's going to be problems there. And so having that... I wouldn't say that. No. no, exactly. And so having that, then I can say that like, 
to limit and prohibit a woman from being able to exercise that authority or exercise authority if she has a God-given gift and talent for authority and exercise teaching if she has a God-given gift and talent for teaching um, and has the intellectual knowledge and education to study the Bible is to send the body of Christ into the world with his hand tied behind his back. Because hmm. you're limiting half hmm. the church from being able to minister to the rest of the church. And I think that that in itself, and while I know you don't like emotional arguments because you want it to be straight from the text, I think the text tells us that we are the body of Christ and that all Christians are part of that body of Christ, that all Christians are called to be the be the hands and feet, be Christ and be conformed to Christ. I wasn't called to be conformed to biblical womanhood. I was called to be conformed to Christ. Okay. So last thoughts. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, it made me sad because I, I, I was hoping we were going to talk a lot more Bible about versus the Bible text. And a little less about historical and context. We didn't. Yeah, we, <laughs> we should have talked about Phoebe. We probably would have had a more fun conversation there yeah. because mine is, you know, taking the word that she and I, used for yeah, Phoebe. This this conversation always always ends up frustrating me because you know it it's hard in in our culture to make a cultural argument for me to argue for the biblical text without sounding like a total pig, right? It's <laughs> we like, still like you. It's like it's not that I hate women. I love women. I'm going to marry one. <laughs> like I kind of I kind of think that that. Uh, the only thing that makes my that that makes my view is I gotta I gotta say what the text says. Yeah, and it's like I and I will say like, I admire. There, okay, sorry, go ahead. Anytime we're 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 coming across a passage that we kind of don't like and that we wish we didn't have to follow, um, if the answer always is mm. there's some clever reason why it doesn't apply to me. Mm. I just I mm. I don't like it. It, yeah. It's. I think it's. It's insincere, and it, it looks like we're saying. It, it looks like we're saying we believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, but we're not. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I don't wear a head covering in church because of the First Corinthians eleven passage, because it says men should not. When I'm praying, I raise a hand because in this very passage, it starts out with, "I want the men in all places mm -hmm. to pray, lifting holy hands." It's. Is there? Do I totally understand exactly why? No, but if my if my faith extends only up to I can't wear a hat in church, that's it. <laughs> Too much. Um, yes, I would die for God, but I wouldn't take off my hat. Mm. I, I'm like, where is your where is the the respect and the submission to the text? We we talk about how we're going to submit to the Word of God, and then and then if it's every time you come to a passage you don't like, it's like, well, here's why that. That doesn't mean what it so plainly says. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there, there's, it's, it's just really, it's really plain. It, uh, and if I it was plain, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But here's the thing: we are. I know, I know, I know. You guys, she wants to talk about Phoebe. I can, I can feel the gears turning in both of y'all's minds right now. But we are out of time. So, how about this? If you want to talk with either of these people, engage them further, tell people where they can find you with angry emails or let's go yay feminism whatever where, where can people find you Beth? Yeah, uh, you can email me my email is complicated so I'll say it slowly um, but it's Elizabeth with an S uh, white like the color dot H-O-U at gmail dot com and that's so, not too complicated yeah, email me there okay and uh, where can people find you? I uh, go to the podcast, Reasoned Refrain, R-E-A-S-O-N-E-D, R-E-F-R-A-I-N, um, reasonedrefrain.com, or my blog, mygiveonthings.com. You can email Stephen at reasonedrefrain.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at reasonedrefrain.com. 
Okay, so, uh, and you can hear all his hot takes on his <laughs> podcast as yeah. well. Um, you can hear about good scotches to try too. Which is, <laughs> okay, which is, and didn't you just good. do one, this was titled something like the Bible's not inerrant? Yep. Uh-oh. I said your Bible's not inerrant. Oh, I mean, I figured there was some sort of little twist and yeah, nuance, but anyway. And for all things Theology on Tap and Theology on Air, you can find all that information at HoustonTOT.com, including upcoming live events if you live in Houston and you want to come maybe spar with these guys in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but as usual, until we see you guys next, I encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.